0: and welcome to this week's vfx show where we're looking at alien and a little bit aliens um this is our review show which is uh, brought to you by uh, our sponsors and uh, we've had a lot of support lately we really appreciate that coming up we have our coverage of fmx which is going to be sponsored by uh, autodesk and we thank them for, for that you should check out uh the fmx coverage coming up but this week we're looking at alien and uh, this is a great great film and as always uh, on this review show we tend to look at how the films are handled and handling the subject matter that they're doing. This is not an interview with the filmmakers. This is really like a review. We try and review the effects, though, not just the film, and uh, and give attention to what we think works and also what we don't work and hopefully some insight as to why we think it doesn't work. And I'm joined on the line by uh, two of our co-hosts, experienced people in the field whose opinion I really value, uh, starting with Matt. How are you, Matt?
1: Uh, I am great, and I'm super excited for this show. I've been looking forward to this one for a while uh and ty are you there sir
2: i am indeed and i'm also uh very pleased to have an opportunity to uh, talk about one of my favorite films
0: yeah so we're going to be talking about alien and aliens but mainly i guess about alien in um, the shadow of the upcoming prometheus Uh, we're not going to be talking about prometheus because when this show is recorded it hasn't uh uh been released yet i don't know if you guys know much about it but um but whatever we kind of know about it, we're not allowed to talk about. So, so, mm-hmm. uh, but clearly, uh, it's Ridley Scott, and uh, by discussing Alien, which is actually his second film uh, ever, we get a really interesting insight into not only visual effects but uh, kind of lay the groundwork for this probably one of the most anticipated films of the year i'm sure you guys agree prometheus is absolutely certainly building up a lot of uh job. i was actually at a major effects house and a senior visual effects supervisor knew that i knew something about the film because of various reasons and he just started quizzing me about it and then he had to be like i'm sorry i'm sorry i know you know to talk about it. and i started thinking wow i've never had a supervisor act like such a <laughs> fan before <laughs> i mean it really was like it was almost like uh you know i can't do that right <laughs> like it was like <laughs> i was telling someone that wasn't in the industry um This film is uh, starting with Alien um, but, of course, moving into uh, Aliens, which, let's face it, is in the sequel department one of the great sequels of all time. So it it deserves um, good mention. But Alien was, and I still think uh, is, uh, probably the scariest mother of a film that I've ever (laughs) had the the luck of enjoying. And I watched it again recently and I thought I would be okay. I figured just when I was young, uh, in 79 when it came out, when – uh, you know it had that famous tagline in space no one can hear you scream i just thought back then i was scared because i was a kid but today i would be fine with it i knew what happened i know the effects i was still actually making noises out loud uh <laughs> sort of uh it was uh, i don't know about you guys but do you still find it scary today ty
2: yeah well you know it's funny because um i was thinking about the first time i saw the picture and uh a friend of mine who back when i saw it, it was when it first came out and i just graduated high school and um Uh, back then um, most films would open in the major cities uh, you know a month or so before they got to the smaller towns where I lived in a a smaller town than than Minneapolis St. Paul and a friend of mine who was in school in Minneapolis called me and said don't talk to anyone about this movie just you know get in the car and come up here as soon as you can and and you have to see it because he'd seen it like the previous night so I went uh, went into Minneapolis to um, the Skyway Theater which was the biggest uh, theater in Minneapolis at the time and we went to like a nine o'clock show and it was absolutely sold out and and without getting into the details of the picture because i'm sure we'll go there uh, by the last 15 minutes i remember distinctly kind of looking back over my shoulder and the audience was was kind of waving around like like bobbers in a in a you know on a rough water sea and moaning was audible everywhere. People were ah, you know ah, and it was just this. Uh, I had never experienced anything like it um, except when I was really young and every, all the girls were screaming at Beetle movies or you know the look of wonder in people after two thousand one. But as far as seeing an audience really um, affected by cinema, kind of so dramatically, it was. It was really incredible. And and popcorn was, you know, getting thrown out in the air because of people losing their wits. And it, it was a really memorable for exactly what you're saying. It was just scary. And, and every turn was almost more uh, terrifying than the last.
0: I think a lot of people characterize this as the first of the gritty space, dark kind of, you know, it had such an adult kind of vibe, and that Star Wars was all clean and perky and shiny. But actually, I don't think that's kind of fair. I think, uh, Matt, that Star Wars actually had wear and tear. It just wasn't this dark. But it still is remarkable
1: how this film was made in 79, don't you think, in terms of visual aesthetics? Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, I went back and watched... I'm I'm just a few years younger, I think, than you guys, enough such that when this film was released in 1979... I was only nine years old, so I didn't see it theatrically when it first came out. I was really aware of the film, um, even at the age of nine. Though um, one from the the ads that I remember on television with the the sort of the cracking egg and the green glow coming out—a great ad campaign, really scary as a as a kid. But um, I was familiar with it mostly because of um, I had been such a big fan of Star Wars, and I um, had a subscription to a really popular magazine at the time called Starlog magazine yep. that had all these great behind the scenes things that was really my first uh, foray into an interest in special effects you know seeing all these great behind the scenes uh, images of all these different films that were being produced at that time after the phenomenal success especially of Star Wars and they, they had all kinds of um, behind the scenes bits and I even remember a Mad Magazine spoof of Alien which I think I actually read before I ever even saw the film and I, I, to be honest, I don't remember, um, which is sort of embarrassing to say, but I don't remember the first time I saw Alien. But I will say this. I have seen the movie so many times uh, over the course of my more adult life, including watching it again recently. And, I mean, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it is one of probably my top two, sometimes my top film of all time. I think it is just a phenomenal, incredible, fantastic work of art and uh, by a a truly great uh, artist of the cinema, and it functions so well on so many levels. Um, And it was really fun going back and looking at it again, and I actually watched um, something I'd never done. I watched the DVD with the Ridley Scott commentary, um, and it was so interesting hearing uh, a lot of the descriptions of some of the uh, production difficulties as well as, um, you know, tricks, so many, just, Fantastic in-camera tricks that were done uh, for the effects, as well as uh, various elements within the film itself. But
0: I was fourteen when it came out. Um, but I was at a boys' boarding school, and they would have a cinema night where they would actually project films. And at some point, they projected Aliens. Um, uh, on it was like a Saturday night. You would go up and uh, to the you know, great sort of hall, and you'd all sort of lug up there with your blankets, and you'd watch movies. And they, of course, they'd stop it between reels because we only had one projector, and they you know, put the next reel up. So I'm sure the projection quality wasn't particularly good. It scared the bajillicans out of I me. Mean, it was already a dark film. So, <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I mean, I've saw it. I have not watched it as much as I've watched Aliens. and And the honest truth for that is, it just scares me so much that I need to be in the mood for it. I mean, Aliens. I remember seeing that when it came out um, and I was now at university and I saw it with a mate and we were really into filmmaking and we were pulling apart the effects and we, we just mm-hmm. were fascinated by uh, the, the effects and how it's being done and trying to spot stuff. Unlike this film where I, I couldn't even begin to look at the effects when I watched it because it was just so hard to not be um, sort of – Scared witless. Um, there's some really great reference for this film if you're interested in it, and I'm going to flag a couple of them right out of the gate because we're gonna, I'm certainly going to be referring to them. Um, you've already mentioned the DVD commentary, which I think is is a good one. Um, I have the 20th anniversary. I think it's the 20th anniversary DVD box set that had one, two, three, and four in it, which I think is now discontinued, uh, but has some good material in it. But the a couple of spectacular written references. Um, the first ever issue, issue one. Of effects, yeah. yeah. Now this is significant at a couple of levels. Apart from the fact that you get really great um, behind-the-scenes uh, imagery and stuff of the film, uh, to this day, Don Shay, the editor, regrets the fact that he stuck Star Wars on a uh, Star Trek on the front and Alien <laughs> on the back. So the yeah. the issue is divided into two. It's uh, star trek at the front which of course was a well-known tv franchise being rebirthed with huge kind of whatever and this dark sci-fi kind of horror film at the back and and he realizes that now the film at the back should have been on the cover because it is literally (laughs) um a more significant uh, film in in many respects um and, and not just like from a box office point of view i mean just like in terms of History, I guess. Um, the other one that's really good—I don't know if you guys have seen it—is that um, Geiger himself has a book called uh, Geiger's Alien. Now, I mm-hmm. know I'm saying his name right because it has a big bit in the back about how to pronounce his name, and the Americans pronounce it Geiger, and he says that's wrong. <laughs> um, but not only does it have his uh, drawings, which you'd expect, has a lot of really great behind-the-scenes photos from Shepard and when they were filming. But also, he has a—he had a diary, so there are lots of. Um, bits in it where you've just got transcripts of what happened as he wrote it in his diary that night. So, for example, when he presented the design for the um, exterior shot of the uh, the ship, um, he was at a meeting with uh, someone from America and uh, Scott, and and there was a huge argument against his thing, but he knew Scott was on his side, and he said he'd just shut up and let Scott, because he knew Scott would win in the end. And uh, so you get this really great insight into a guy who's clearly... Uh, central to the success and Near I say it, the horror um, of this film But it's quite a big kind of a coffee table book But unlike most coffee table books which are I would say kind of lame and very much Sort of fan driven, this is really Driven by the designer himself And uh, I'd recommend both of those to you guys if you're Listening and you want to really follow up um, yeah, You know,
1: I, if I might Mike, too, too, there's two other ones too that I think Are really worthy of note, one of them being The, the Book of Alien which is The Paul Scanlon and Michael Gross uh, Book, it's a it's a not a very thick, but it has a huge amount of behind-the-scenes uh, imagery as well as tons and tons of concept uh, work that were was done by uh, both the Mobius concept work for the spacesuit costume as well as some of the um, a lot of the Ron Cobb drawings that were done for. Uh, Some of the environments um, and some of the interiors that are just remarkable. Tons of on-set photos. And then a book that was just recently released, at least in the United States. I don't know if it's an international release or not. It's a much slicker presentation, um, although it's kind of a different book. It's called The Alien Vault by uh, Ian Nathan. And it's the definitive story of the making of the film. And uh, it's got all these great inserts in it, like... um, Uh, original ridley scott storyboards and like a nostromo uh patch and all that kind of stuff but uh, those are both i think available on uh, on amazon and they're great great references i was reading through both of them over the over the uh, last week
0: yeah i must say that's one of the things i also liked in this giga book Uh, he has ridley's sketches little drawings uh put in with his own so you've got the uh what's the name that they give to those ridley ridley drawings there's like a Wrigley Grams or something. Um, But, uh, yeah, so he's got those showing, you know, um, the notes he got from the director and, of course, his drawings uh, and production stuff back. But you're right. Like, I mean, if you can get access to that stuff, I think it really adds a huge dimension to a film. Um, And
1: Really a a seminal film, I think, for anyone who's interested in visual effects or science fiction. You know, I mean, I think just historically the the kind of influence that uh, the first Alien had on, you know, the way that we perceive of science fiction, and in general, um, kind of big tentpole cinema, I think really uh, changed pretty dramatically. Um, I think it was as important, um, if not in some ways, maybe even more important than uh, a film like Star Wars. I I would say that Star Wars
0: captured the popular culture more. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, and I don't think you can ever get a definitive answer to that question. But I do think that Alien surprisingly gets slightly overshadowed by Blade Runner, and I don't think that's fair. I think it's a better film than Blade Runner. Um, Ty, what do you think?
2: Well, I'm a big fan of both the pictures. I, I think for me, what I recall uh, when I first saw the picture, and I think the way that I, I kind of view it now is that it's exactly what we were talking about earlier. You know, there, I, I see 2001: A Space Odyssey, and you know, of course, I'm, I'm a, a the big giant fan of that film but there is a certain mystery about that film that kind of is off-putting in the sense that it makes the unknown kind of frightening you know it's about isolation it's about these complex machines that are working in the vacuum and it has a grandeur and a spectacle to it but it also kind of makes you question you know how you're how you're seated in the universe to a degree and it was um provocative then you had this kind of move towards um close encounters uh, star wars and then et i would include where there's this kind of even even though close encounters had moments that i would say were kind of frightening the whole movie itself is more of a like a spectacle like isn't isn't this possible outer universe just this amazing place where we can have friends and and they can be aliens and they can have lives and and, and basically fairy tales like the star wars uh, you know universe once upon a time and um i think maybe because of my age i, I love the star wars films and i, I love close encounters and uh but by the time alien showed up it really was a film that i think uh, put the put the 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 fear of the unknown and the kind of the, the kind of huge potential for calamity and um, you know uh, um, the dangers uh, uh, and the isolation of space back into the canon of of science fiction and I think that I was really glad about this at the age I was because I liked the idea of having um, you know a, a real range of science fiction but also a kind of science fiction that spoke to adults in a weird way and asked provocative questions. And I think that... You know, there's been a lot written about alien, uh, but one thing in general is it, it makes, like, you as a human a very alien inside of that environment of space. And uh, you become, you know, you need these machines and these suits, and then you encounter these strange things, and and the alien is more comfortable there than we are. So there's a lot of weird flip-flops, and I think the richness of the storytelling and, and just the um, directness of the human components uh, is just um, – uh, sucks you in and 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 asks you to question things about um, the the nature of humanity or the nature of humans in uh, in um, you know uh, in tough situations.
0: Yeah, I mean, for our industry, that period at the end of the seventies, the beginning of the eighties, is probably one of the it's probably the most significant turning point. Um, you know, in all of the history of visual effects. I mean, there are some great visual effects films, obviously back in the, to the 30s, and um, there's some really... But when you hit that end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, and you've got Close Encounters, you've got uh, this, of course, uh, Star Wars, and then as you hit uh, the beginning of the 80s, you've got uh, E.T. And, and Blade Runner. I mean, this is... Um, and in the middle of all that, I guess, you've got uh, 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 more Star Wars. Um, it's just an incredible period of oh my God, look what visual effects can do. And it's no accident, I think, that that was the birth of the sort of tentpole films. I mean, if you go forward to today, you get a film like Battleship. It's a complete line back because that's when the studios kind of woke up to the fact that if you could make these big elaborate effects films, they could open in their own right. I mean, Sigourney was... This is her first film. She's not an established star. This is literally her first film. Um, I don't know, I just feel like... I was really lucky to have experienced that.
1: Well, I think what you say, Mike, too, with regards to our industry, I think that era of which this film is a part is really, I think it is the golden age of the photochemical and optical um, hmm. processing of visual effects, of the practical model building, of the practical sets, of the miniatures, of, um, of you know, the beginnings of the uh, – or the mastery even of the optical and of the um, – optical composite, um, it's really the the golden age of, of all the sort of hands-on, um, you know, physical, uh, effect, effects making, uh, in the world of visual effects before we kind of ramp into the kind of the current era of sort of the the spawning of and the birth of the digital age.
0: Well, let's discuss the visual effects, um, and, you know, we're going to obviously be giving it, um a fairly glowing report, but it's it's a film that's going to have to survive a fairly huge technological period because between 79 and today, uh, what was, you know, considered incredibly hard back then is now able to be done on my laptop, literally. So um, if we are critical of it, uh, I think it's, you know, I don't think any of us are critical of it in terms of what it did in its day. I don't think, I think I can have a quick rip around, right? You guys would agree that in its day, its visual effects were wholly remarkable and without you know exception successful
2: oh yeah yeah i mean um i guess to me there is a congruency to the work that that almost kind of encapsulates the movie so you can talk about it in terms of the new technologies of visual effects that we have today but as far as what it is to itself that kind of um you know that kind of capsule of a film made in a specific time it's genius
0: yeah
1: Yeah, and I think actually, too, that there are um, even some visual effects, you know, watching it again, um, you know, in HD, I got a, I had, we got a new TV here recently, a big (laughs) 47-inch TV. It was so fun sitting down and watching it again and seeing it really big and seeing it really for the first time in, I mean, I don't know how long, in like true HD, we haven't, I haven't had a really great setup here in quite a while, but um. Uh, And I thought, actually, a lot of the effects held up really well, and I was fascinated in listening to um, the commentary and then watching a few of the special features, which I think are also on the same set that you have, Mike, um, about some of the effects, at how much of this stuff was done in camera, on set.
0: (laughs) This is an $8.4 million film. This is not... um I'm sure even with inflation, that doesn't make it a $300 million film. Uh, So, yeah, there's a lot of really clever stuff. And, you know, there's some stuff in there that is just trickery. You know, it's like a a good cut. Um, Well, let's let's go to specifics. I mean, when they move from the rubber head to the actual head uh, of the disembodied but sort of rebooting um, droid at the end of the film, you, you clearly have got a kind of a cheap by today's standards edit point between the rubber mask and the guy sticking his head up uh through the deck and ash you know is believable and works and yet by today's standards you wouldn't get away with it but it was a you know a great solution at the time and um i don't think i cared and i probably still don't care today but uh it's trickery, right? I mean, today you could easily do things uh, that are digital and do all sorts of matte paintings. And But this was a great in-camera solution. You know, you have a rubber head and then a hand kind of wipes the frame and the next thing you know, you've got a guy's head coming out through the uh, through the floor. Um, is that is that a believable effect by today's standards? Well, I mean, certainly when he's sitting there post-cut, it looks very believable and it's really, really good. Um, uh, maybe today we'd have a better transition from where... It was a rubber mask to where it was the head, but I don't know. We'd end up with a with an, a secondary shot, the shot of when he's talking. It would be any better. What do you think, Ty? Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I, I kind of look at these pictures.
2: It's sort of like if you look at, um, and I don't want to go too far afield, but if you look at The Wizard of Oz, for example, you know, it, it's such a classic, and it's such a, it so embodies the the filmmaking. Uh, technology of its day that you can look at it with a a kind of its success as a piece of cinema and then you can look at it in terms of the various components that that comprise it and 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 of course you could go through and say well you could do a better you could do a 3d matte painting instead of a you know just a flat glass matte painting and so on and so forth um and what you're bringing up with regards to ash and his head is that it's pretty easy um even i recall seeing it to to know that it's a guy with his head through the table but what's so interesting to me is that i remember just so being so caught up in the emotion and so freaked out that just moments earlier this guy was a I didn't know what he was when he first started no, yeah. to when he started leaking milk I was I didn't know <laughs> what and again it's a very I think it's a very R-rated picture it was you know it was the, some of the symbolism and some of the um, kind of crazy calamity that unfolds is very unsettling and, and um, in a group uh, with people screaming and, and carrying on and then to just suddenly think they're going to connect the head back on I didn't see that coming and then he, he gives us a little incredible you know speech about this thing you know is unstoppable and pure and perfect and so forth I, I don't think I mean, if they would have just, um, you know, if I could have seen, (laughs) you know, I I just was so wanting to go forward with the story that that, um, the fact that I could figure out with no difficulty at all how it was done um, never really entered my mind. Of course, I think the, the concern I would have in today would be that you would actually go out of your way to make it completely convincing that it was a detached head and you might have to have a... An extra scene, uh, you know, where it drops to the floor and you know it gets kicked around, and then they set it up, and then it starts talking, just to prove that it's, you know, this complete disconnect. Because we could do all those things digitally, but in service to the story and in service to the to larger picture, um, it's kind of a moot point.
0: It is a deeply disturbing film, isn't it? I mean, and also, I guess, watching it again, maybe because I'm older now, but I'm really aware of the sexuality in it that I wasn't aware of back in the day there are some really i mean obviously as a teenager boy the end stuff of ripley in the cottontails was overtly sexual as it was to every other young male in my generation but but i mean the rest of it is there's quite a lot of weird sort of disturbing kind of overtones of obsession and stuff in it and uh and i know that we end up with the you know the final girl standing kind of horror film thing but of course uh, probably the best one ever in terms of Ripley being such a strong character when she's when she's in that position. But if we back it up, it's the the very design of the alien was somehow sexually provocative. I thought, and uh, yeah, it was a disturbing. It was a disturbing film,
1: but it wasn't. Well, yeah, there's all, there's all these great subtexts that you know you can read into the film, and you look at a lot of that Giger uh, work, and so much of it is this you know, the, the biomechanical elements of it, but also it's very sexual, and there's all these kind of, um, you know, <laughs> sexual organs and orifices and protrusions and whatnot that are a part of the design aesthetic, which both, um, I think, makes it visually, you know, kind of arresting and like something that's sort of fascinating, but also, uh, you know, equally horrifying in its sort of perversion um, that it takes on in its totality as a as a form. But then uh, even the the very nature of the way in which uh you know the the aliens reproduce and how that's acted out in the film there's this whole kind of almost like a you know like a male uh rape and then you know pregnancy and birth kind of uh, thing that's going on that's you know so interesting in that kind of uh that sense of um of uh anxiety and violation. I mean, there's all these great kind of Freudian <laughs> Freudian interpretations oh, yeah. of it. And apparently it you was know, even
0: stronger at some point. At one point in the end sequence, uh, they had, or Ripley had the idea that the alien, you know, when, when uh, Sigourney's suiting up, that they would they would view each other through glass and the alien would kind of look at her body and look at and sort of touch its own body, you know, kind of near, mm. yeah, I mean, it's getting very close to, um, to a rape aesthetic. I, I'm going to pose a, a thing to you though. As much as this is a disturbing sexuality. It feels like a, uh, an adolescent, a teenage, obsessive, physical sexuality, which I think really interestingly became a motherhood issue in, the, in Aliens, where it really became Ripley protecting her daughter um, and a mother against a mother kind of vibe. And I, I just feel like there was a really interesting generational change as we moved from that adolescent teenage sexuality to a parental... Uh, motherly kind of you know with a young child thing. Did did anyone do you see that subtext in in Aliens? I mean, he must. It's so obvious.
1: I or mean, I think, think you know. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ty.
0: No, go ahead, Matt.
1: Oh, I was just going to say uh, you know I think that one of the interesting things in the in in Alien and the whole kind of the whole Alien franchise. If you want to <laughs> go the distance, um, you know, and I I think we could at least touch on some of the other films as well. But but I think um. You know at least in in the original alien i mean it's it's one of the first films that I was really aware of growing up that had a f- a female protagonist a strong female protagonist who was both um, you know the one sort of sole survivor, which I guess is actually not uh, totally unique in the in the horror genre anyway it seems like that's something that occurs uh, quite frequently but um but certainly uh, of a film of this um Magnitude. It was the first real film to have a female lead, I think, in that way. Um, but also, I thought that um, in the secondary film and in the, you know, where she's sort of, like you're saying, like more of the sort of mother and child kind of thing. And that it's sort of these, um, you know, the Ripley character versus the queen and the newt or her, you know, dead daughter or whatever versus the the offspring of the, uh, the queen. Um, I think, you know, that's a very... And we could talk about that film too. That's such a such a Cameron uh, movie, and it takes on such a different uh, kind of aesthetic. I was I was actually though thinking even too that it's fascinating to think about how she comes back again in the third film, um, and how they sort of end the third film, and then the fourth film, uh, which I never really was a big fan of. It was I was fascinated. I didn't know this to see that the original script for that was written by Josh Whedon.
0: Yeah, I saw that as well. I saw that as well. And, it's funny
1: I was fascinated uh, by that, and I love that I saw this thing today that I think actually Todd Vaziri, our other uh, host on the VFX show, had posted, and it was a great uh, quote from uh, Joss Whedon. And it, the question was, why do you write strong female characters? And Joss Whedon's answer was, because you're still asking me that question, <laughs> which I thought was so such a brilliant response. And I think, um, you know, you could... I guess say that about the first alien that, you know, she's kind of this female character in jeopardy and there's this kind of teenage kind of sexuality to it. I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I see it that way. Um, and that the transition, there's that, that dramatic of a transition between the first film and the second film, but, um,
0: Can we clear the I decks on three and four then? So we have the, some of the greatest directors of all time in this genre, in this franchise, right? You've got Ridley, Cameron Fincher, et cetera. Do you, do you have a just quick opinion on three and four? I mean, I think. Well, I'll tell you what I think after it's tied. Do you want to start? Like, what are your opinions on the subsequent films?
2: Well, I think that um, for me, three is um, is a is not a. There was a film in three that I didn't see on screen. I think that, that's the appropriate way to. to to say it like there's moments of like fincher um you know genius if you will but i think he was probably hobbled and from what i know and and having just had a little involvement in that picture uh, it was very difficult for him to helm the movie he wanted to and i think that's apparent um the fourth film unfortunately to me i'm not a, a fan of um i felt as though it was um it was kind of a cobbled together um, story that had as much to do with kind of the eccentric characters that surrounded the main uh, storyline as it did with the main storyline and the main character. And for me, the franchise has to do with a very, um, um, a very recognizable uh, kind of conflict between these two universes that's not muddled with a lot of uh, secondary, uh, you know, kind of parallel ideas and issues. So... Um, to me, the, you know, like I, I like all four films, but uh, I think they
0: diminish, you know, after
2: uh, Jim's.
0: Yeah, I don't think Jim's. I, I'm pretty sure that's what you're saying. Well, Jim's didn't necessarily diminish Ridley's. It was different after that. Exactly. Kind of went, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: I think they're a perfect uh, pairing, like you suggested at the top of the show. I think that if you look at sequels, you know, you can look at Godfather Two, you can look at Empire, you can look at Alien and Aliens. So they're they're perfectly matched. And I and just t- one point on what you were mentioning earlier about the character of Ripley kind of morphosing, it's a great morphose for her to go from being this kind of warrior to finding out that she in fact had. Um, had a child that she was trying to give a better life to by being a, a pilot and then got caught in this, you know, this horrible situation and then just time became her enemy. By the no. time she's woke yeah. up, it's genius. It's genius writing and you understand everything that you need to know uh, out of just a few little lines of dialogue at the opening. And then by becoming this uh, mother character that is surprising in a sense but logical – um, you are really with her and understand her motivation. It's, the the two pictures are really well-balanced, I think.
1: Well, and that Cameron script, I mean, going back and watching that one again, too, I mean, man, that I, I watched even the, uh, I guess it's what the special edition or whatever that has mm-hmm. some of the extra stuff that was cut out of the original theatrical release. But going back and watching that again, man, that is one tight screenplay. I mean, like, everything is, uh, you know, thought through and everything is neatly tidied and wrapped up in the end. And man, it is such a Cameron movie on every level. It is such a great film. Yeah. Yeah. It's got his DNA all over it. I mean, it's just, it's, and it's a hell of a lot of fun, you know? I mean, I saw that film, at the age of 16 I drove with my buddy uh, a buddy of mine down to uh, Costa Coast Mesa and sort of near Newport Beach where we grew up in Southern California and we went and saw it in a big theater and we saw it at night and afterwards we were driving home like I'd just gotten my driver's license like earlier that year and we were driving home on the freeway and my uh my old, I had this old car that had like a one of those sliding moonroofs that you could slide back, and we were driving with that open because it's you know Southern California it was a nice night out, and we both were so freaked out we had to close it, you know, like <laughs> we were just like, oh man, we can't be driving with the top open, and uh, <laughs> it was such a powerful and arresting film. I think uh, some of the things in Aliens for me, I know this is going to be blasphemy for some people. I feel like some of the things in the film um, don't hold up as well. A lot of the um, I think the effects in Aliens actually don't hold up as well for me as they do in the original Alien. Um, Some of the opticals, I think, don't hold up quite as well, um, as well as some of the miniatures – scale-wise don't quite hold up as much but it's still um you know for my money it's still one heck of a great movie to watch and it's just so much fun
0: well well, as he showed in Terminator 2 he's not he wasn't scared of a sequel but also he wasn't scared of a sequel in terms of needing it to be identical you don't have to play the same gags um so, I think what was nice, you know, the way we were talking about there about sexuality, the same thing happened with in this one, in Alien, you had the idea of the worker. I mean, the whole section at the beginning going on about, am I going to get a, a you know, bonus and the pay and shut up about yeah. the pay? I mean, it just made it so human. And then you get in the second film the idea of the grunt soldier, which now we kind of take for granted. But back when he was doing it, it was very much kind of, you know, the guy who's asleep on the drop. You know, it was just mm-hmm. this—it's just this brilliant portrayal of um, hard-ass kind of grunts that were not the heroes that were, you know, leaders that had been um, leading their men into battle, but just you know, down and dirty. Um, so there was a lot of aspects where he would sort of pick up something and then he'd use it differently. But there was a, an echo of the original, and that's what a sequel's good at doing, right?
1: Well, and there's a yeah, absolutely, and there's a fantastic interview on the uh, on the uh, disc, the aliens disc where it's actually Don Shea of Cinefax interviewing, uh, Jim Cameron about yeah. aliens. And it was, I think right around the time the film came out. I mean, it must be 86 or maybe 87 at the, uh, very latest, but it looks like 86 in the interview. I mean, at the earliest and, um, it 's a, it's a great interview, and they talk about a lot of that stuff and talk a lot about some of the practicalities and some of the difficulties in making a film like that where he really said he wanted to make kind of a, a vietnam kind of esque war movie uh, in that alien universe, and some of the concerns that were um, put forward by the by the studio and the financiers of the film, and you know how are you going to do this and they had all these uh, plans where they were going to only they, how many, you know, it was so expensive. The first film, you know, in its adjusted gross dollars, it was so expensive to make. And there were a lot of production issues on the first film with some of these large sets. And how are you going to do that? And he had this plan where they were only going to make, he convinced them he could make just six suits, six alien suits, and uh, focused on some of the key things that he wanted to do with the aliens. And he talked about, um, you know, focusing primarily on their movement, you know, trying to come up with ways that you could get uh, dancers and acrobats and people into these costumes and do, doing wire work where they would move in a way that was sort of inhuman. And it was all about a similar kind of, um, I think, you know, editorial and photo trickery, the same kind of thing that I think was a big, played a big element in a lot of the effects and a lot of the way in which we experienced the spacecraft as well as um, you know, the alien environments, the ship, um, the scale of things, a lot of trickery that was used in the original Alien. Cameron employed a lot of those same techniques, started to his own ends in the second film and created this really rich tableau that felt much grander, I think, than than uh, even it really was at the time. You know, you really felt like you were in this um, situation where there were, you know, hundreds of these things uh, coming after them when they were really never more than six of them on the screen at one time. And I think there was only one or two shots where you actually see all six when they're crawling um, in the crawl space above the ceiling.
0: Yeah. Discussing the first one uh, again, I wanted to touch on some uh, obvious aspects of the visual effects, and and but also the cinematography. and I, Something that struck me, and I want you guys to comment on this, it, it didn't dawn on me until I was seeing this new DVD um, or seeing the DVD again. The camera work of uh, Scott's film was fascinating because there are times where the camera is very apparent in its movement. Normally, we hide camera movements. You know, you would follow a character. um, You would have a, a shot that would sort of hide the readjustment or reframing based on the movement of characters and following their action. But it was the exact opposite. You'd have shots that would, in most films, be a POV of a character or something, and they hadn't even found the alien yet um and when they did find the alien for example there's a shot they walk back into the infirmary where the um the alien is missing and you know it'll drop down on sigourney's shoulder in a second the camera is low on the ground in what should be a lock off but i noticed that it had a really subtle amount of movement to it which would give you the impression that maybe that was the pov of the alien but not enough that it actually was the pov and because it wasn't because it was up in the rafters but there was there was the active use of a of a of an active camera that just became incredibly unsettling to me because I was never quite sure and I didn't even consciously realize it but it was sort of like am I seeing somebody seeing this or is somebody spying on this or you know it was a very an odd uh, choice because normally we would you know we would hide that with just sort of majestic shots did that camera work stand out to anybody else?
2: Well, I mean, just on that point, um, I'm not certain that that specific instant um, is something that that I was cognizant of. But I will say along those lines that if you look at the film in totality – um, the framing the the use of what I would call almost a documentary camera um, or a found footage camera you know you, this yep. is a period that period of the '70s where you had Robert Altman and these directors who were experimenting with ensemble casts and doing pickups and you know catching a bit here and a bit there, um, you know certainly he was doing everything possible to kind of build a, a very um, believable foundation with the actors and the environment and then keeping you uh, as unsettled as possible where events unfolded in these unexpected ways. And, you know, I think in a, in a lesser film, the, the, the moment where they're looking for the little face hugger in the scene you're pointing to and, and you know, they're poking around the flashlight and all of a sudden it drops down. It's, a, it's kind of a jack-in-the-box scare. That would get ridiculed in, uh, in a lesser film because it's sort of a misdirection of the audience, and then mm-hmm. a setting up, and then. But in that moment, I think. Because of the kind of way the larger picture is structured, you just move on from it. You're scared and you're – and then they move on to the next point about the, you know, oh, see he all right? And you're, you're all – okay, you're, you know, you're focusing on the next thing. It's not just a, a setup for, you know, what would be called like a, a, you know, a, a simple scare. It's, it's more in the context of the larger picture. Um, something that keeps you on edge and and i think that's a you know kind of a theme uh with the with the way the whole film is um you know uh shot and structured
0: there are great shots where it's framed to allow an alien to come over a shoulder and nothing Mm -hmm. happens which of course is a classic kind of technique of screwing with your cinema language understanding but I, i you're right i didn't it didn't feel like cheap shots to me what were going to say, Matt?
1: I was going to say, too, just, I mean, you know, it's historically kind of uh, documented that Ridley Scott, too, he's a, uh, you know, an avid uh, storyboarder. He storyboards everything um, and gets everything down of what it is that he's trying to do, while at the same time, I think, you know, does a lot of compositional experimentation uh, on set. And you look at um, this film, if you look at it just from a purely cinematic composition uh, perspective, um, you know solely for how shots are composed i think you know he has uh robin hood um you know if we can just forget that robin hood ever happened i think if you go back and uh look at the bulk of ridley scott's movies and even i know we're not going to really talk about it but even if you look at the trailer for prometheus that's been circulating around online you know this guy is a master of composition i mean he fills the frame in a, a very rich visual way and um in a film like Alien, uh it works so well and it functions in such an interesting way, much in the way that I think uh it's it's a similar movie in a lot of ways for me to, to Jaws. You know, it's the same kind of um story in a sense, and it's being told in a similar way. And that we kinda have this um you know, this this monster that we know is out there that we see bits and pieces of from time to time, but so much of what happens and so much of the fear and anxiety and the kind of tension that 's built up is centered around what we what we don 't see you know i mean mm. it 's the the great sort of trick of the master magician right it 's like you know all the things that you don 't see that your imagination fills in um, you get so much more um, Sort of Im- you, you kind of you fill in all that stuff. Your brain automatically wants to sort of fill in all the gaps, and your imagination is much more frightening uh, than the reality is, oftentimes. And I think it's done so so well in this film.
0: Well, before we get if back I- to the visual effects, right you've just got it. We have to flag Jones the cat because it's the best cat scare ever. The- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 and, and not only the best cat scare, but I'll I'll say that one you could get in a horror film. When um, one of the guys is taken, um, I think it's Stanton's character is taken, there's a shot of the cat with kind of light flickering on its face as it kind of Mm -hmm. watches what must be him being eaten that is a piece of editorial genius. I don't know if you know what I'm referring to, but the cat is almost fascinated by watching what's going on in a really macabre. If it was a human you 'd think they were a psycho kind of way i mean i 've never seen a better <laughs> reaction shot from a cat in any film ever jonesy yeah
2: it 's a God. predator a predator to a predator, you know like hey, good job and, yeah, yeah, but if I could, if i could on on Matt said something interesting that might be worth a moment of discussion in that and you heard about this film a lot, and I think even Scott himself made mention to what you don 't see. Uh, is what really scares you, uh, or what you believe your imagination will come up something much more scary than what you see, and um, that's true, of course. And in this film, it works geniusly. However, that said, this is a graphic film. <laughs> I mean, when you yeah. when you see the face hugger in that egg, at the time I, I saw it, I, I mean, you could say, well, it looks like a, you know some something like a turkey with some you know with some uh, uh, coal fat over it, which I think is what they use, but. The setup, and by the time he looks in, your every in your brain, you're like, dude, just leave, don't, don't, don't look <laughs> in there. And then the editing—I think there's like seven cuts or something in that. Just that quick blast of when it flies out of there. I mean, the, it, it, then, you, then the next thing you know, it's stuck on his head, and that thing is grotesque in it's in its uh, in its biology. I mean, I, I literally like, you, yelled you,
0: out, "Run!" When he was looking at the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I've seen when, it and, many times.
2: And then they casually start saying, "Wow, well, what's this? What's this? You know, because you know, everyone's been to the doctor, right? And then the guy goes, oh, oh, wait a minute. What's this? Uh, oh, it seems to have something down its throat, down his throat. And that, you're like, it's bad enough it's stuck on his yeah. head. But now, you know, it's got something jammed on his throat. <laughs> then when they do the little autopsy to remove it, he starts to kind of pull on it. And it tightens its tail around the yeah, guy's neck. and going to suffocate him. So it's very graphic. Um, By the time the Chess Buster comes, I was done. I I swear by the time Ash revealed himself as a robot with his leaky milk action, I didn't know. I thought maybe he was going to be some other kind of strange alien that was going to pop out. I was so unsettled. And what he did is loaded up the front end with this jarring graphic action and you carried that dread with you all the way through well now
0: Ty now hang on a second let's let's just analyze that though you said loaded up the front end but the first six Mm -hmm. minutes of this film has no dialogues the first 56 minutes of this film has no deaths so he loaded up yeah, the tension. He didn't load the up the graphic. The pacing is so yeah.
1: important to this movie. Yeah, and it, it's a very, it's a very slow pacing. You know, there's that kind of that opening of where you sort of see the ship, and there's those yeah. little um, things dipping their heads in bobbing the uh, water, what a, yeah. yeah bobbing you know, up those, and down those the uh, birds. The, yeah, the little bird things, and uh, and then there's that whole sequence where they you pan around the ship, you see the sort of ghostly reflections of the um, the monitors in the the. Kind of visors of these yep. these empty helmets and you it 's very much like the uh you know like this ghost ship like there's no people on board and oh, and like. you know and it's it's very uh it, it's it really draws you in it's like uh, this mystery and films aren't made uh with this kind of pacing uh, films of this what what today a film like this of this budget it would be so unusual to see a film have this kind of slow um slow resolve um at the beginning but i I think think that's part of what makes it work so well i think you're right ty in a way that it is uh it is you know front loaded in a lot of ways but it's front loaded with this like just packing in like you know all this tension after tension after tension before there's any kind of release for the audience and there's a lot of audio
0: that's working for us there as well a heck of a lot of audio that's working for us well, additionally,
2: I think the, the 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 dread I refer to is also in what, what Matt, you're saying, and, and um, uh, it, it, even the fact that when they land on the planet, you know, they kind of have this miniature explosion and fire on board, and then there's yeah. the strangeness of the environment, and and there's a lot of, like, you know, discontent about why we've been woken, where's Earth, why isn't it here, where well, we got to go to this planet? I mean, so I guess what I'm suggesting is I'm not so – what I'm what I'm thinking is, but by the time you get the dread built up with the the excursion to the planet to the time the egg opens up, you know that's a fairly um, you know long pacing sequence. But to me, I don't know the when you finally do see something, it, sh- it was shocking. So I was only trying to mm-hmm. illuminate the point that it's it's not all just illusion it's actually and and even the alien when you finally see it in pieces the mouth is horrifying too and the the the, the, this kind of tongue that has a a mouth at the end and the and you had never seen that much uh you know attention with to the to a biting animal with uh, the this you know all the saliva and smoke and uh, i don't know i i feel like that it is it does keep the alien actually it's totality, its design, if you will, the what ended up ultimately to be the suit, that is very well hidden till
1: the final yeah. shot when you see it. Well, and rejected. that it has, no, it has no eyes either, you know, which yeah. sort of robs you from any kind of sense of a way to kind of communicate with it. You know, it, it's like, it's just this, you know, consuming machine, you know, it's sort of you can't reason with this thing. Like, you don't know, how can it even see you, you know?
0: <laughs> also, I, I totally, to, to Ty's point, think that you get that particularly with the um, chest uh, breaking scene because when the... um, that happens, obviously a lot of editing, and there's blood flying around and stuff, but there is some really quite long shots of the the, I guess you'd call it infant alien uh, sitting there. It's pink, it's moist, and it seems to have completely stainless steel teeth and that's there long enough to really get a good look at it. And I think it's the best puppet shot ever. I mean, that's just... Those shiny teeth with that red sort of newborn-looking body was yeah, just a yeah. freakout.
2: Well, not really well done. The uh, quivering body of, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, of the victim in the background. with it, yeah, it his was, hands. It was uh, yeah, it was incredibly um, disturbing.
0: Um, what do we think about... Um, the sort of general space shots uh, because uh, we're going to move away from the sort of creature work for a second because there's quite a few space shots I've got a few um, matte paintings I thought some of the matte paintings completely held up today there's a shot um, it's not a, a spaceship shot but there's a shot where they first go down into the oh, he goes down into the uh, area down the hole on the uh, alien ship and then he appears where just before he reaches the bit where there's the mist that's active where the pods mm-hmm. are it's a wide shot looking back. Um, it's sort of a big, long, effectively hauled like type a canyon. Yeah. almost, yeah. And and there's this tiny little guy kind of moving. And I just thought, well, yep. that shot doesn't need anything else. You don't need to fly into it. You don't need yep. to fly around it. It, it. it just was a standout piece of art. It was. It just said yeah, isolation
1: a, and dread. It's a beautiful shot. I mean, it's definitely one of the the, the seminal. Matte painting shots in the film for sure. And yeah, it's, I mean, it just totally works and it still works great yeah, today.
0: What about the um, spaceship shots? I, I, I
1: think, a lot I think
2: of, oh, go
0: ahead, Matt. Sorry.
1: Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think a lot of the, the spaceship shots are. Are, are pretty successful um you know they some of them hold up a little bit better than others I, what i was really fascinated to discover though and i did not know this until just in the last couple of weeks because i i hadn't gone back i don't have uh Cinefix issue number one i'm sad to say but um so i didn't i didn't get what? a chance to go back and and read that one but um but uh in looking through some of the books as well as then watching uh some of the or watching the commentary i loved how um you know, there were these great stories about how, like the the giant kind of refinery. I is the refinery ship the Nostromo, or is the drop ship that goes down onto the planet the Nostromo, or are they? Nostromo well, is towing. Uh,
0: yeah, so, the Nostromo is the tug. To, oh, it's, oh, it's, meant it's to be,
1: towing the refinery. Okay, it's meant to be eight hundred
0: well, foot long, and the thing it's towing is meant to be one and a half miles long.
1: Gotcha. Okay, so the the refinery. I thought you know there were some great stories about the building of that miniature by the team that put the miniature together, and You know, that Ridley Scott had had this whole thing where he wanted it to look sort of like a gothic cathedral in space. And it very much has that aesthetic, I think. But that they had spent, you know, all these months and all this time working on these giant spires that sort of rise up off of the main kind of refinery structure. And that Ridley Scott came in one day and said, oh, I don't think we need this. And he actually just took literally a hammer and chisel to this model that they'd been working on for six weeks and like hacked away at it and like took down like one of these huge spires and kind of changed the design, you know, because aesthetically he didn't think it worked and wasn't necessary and, uh, you know, reworked the design. I thought stories like that were really great, but I was amazed to find that they did not have, um, a motion control rig. They didn't have a budget for motion control and that all of the, uh, shots, they actually set up a rig, um, similar to motion control, but they did everything in a single pass and they didn't do multiple passes and combine them optically later. I mean, I suppose they did a secondary pass for the background. Um, they must have done something for a secondary pass for the background, but they uh, they would actually do things uh, with uh, a camera rig that allowed them to move the camera, you know, at whatever desired speed. And in, in some of the larger shots of the, um, like the, the Nostromo, when it's pulling away before it's sort of going to, drop down to the planet they actually had uh that was a four-foot miniature that they actually had on a forklift and they actually had the forklift driving backwards to pull it away from the rig with that extending arm and they actually just shot literally shot in camera at speed you know uh, or slightly high speed i guess and then played it back so it was slowed down somewhat of the forklift moving backwards and everything else they just covered in black (laughs) <laughs> and i just thought that yeah. was amazing that 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 was how they did some of those shots and then the landing of the nostromo on the planet there was a thing where something that it was great i never knew this but i listening to the ridley scott commentary he said it always bugged him that they couldn't get those landing lights the christmas tree lights straight and i thought that was so great because that was something that i always wondered like why are those all crooked but um <laughs> I think in the end, it kind of works out okay. You know, it doesn't really... Yeah,
2: it's it's funny because uh, I think that landing sequence is, to me, as far as the space stuff. Now, I'm a huge fan of the design of the Nostromo itself. I mean, you know, I know Chris Foss did a bunch of stuff and Ron Cobb did a bunch of stuff. And it kind of was all, you know, at the end of the day, I think it was a hybrid. But it's such an interesting vehicle because it speaks to... uh, uh, something that Mike was pointing out earlier, it has kind of a working class vibe. It doesn't feel like a, you know, a sexy spaceship. Uh, it doesn't feel like a NASA spaceship. Uh, it feels like a, a labor, you know, a labor uh, vehicle. And um, it's, it's
1: truckers in space for sure. Exactly.
2: And when it when it leaves the platform, um, and then just there's a couple of there's one shot in particular where it's kind of rotating as it heads to the planet's surface. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is the. Handling of the uh, you know the entry into the atmosphere and the calamity that unfolds and it really throws you into this kind of you know uh, kind of sailing ship almost in, in a rough sea kind of a deal and and submarine movies and those kinds of aesthetics and by the time it's actually landing on planet um, you know you really get a sense of scale uh, the use of atmosphere you know in, you know, in camera with the yeah. f- fog and smoke and and using fans to blow it and and getting those blooms off of the grain of wheat bulbs that they use. And what's funny about those lights, I never heard that about them being crooked because I thought it was sort of genius in my mind uh, that they used uh, the lights in less straight manner because the logical thing would be very mechanical. And somehow it felt like they were placed according to the needs of the larger ship, you know, like they couldn't get them where they needed them. And and so when it finally touches down, there's that great shot of this giant foot, you know, landing and they, it kind of culminates with them, you know, having this little fire and shutting down all these switches and everybody going, oh, uh," you know, is the hull breached? Are you all right? And it's, it's, it's a great, it's just a great sequence as far as, you know, real humans in, uh, again, real human beings dealing with um, uh, a really tough situation that you can relate to.
0: I must say my favorite ship by far is the derelict, uh, alien ship. I think it's design is brilliant. It doesn't look like something we'd seen before, but it does feel like it would have some function. It's not symmetrical, which is again, that point you were making that it was built for a purpose, not for some kind of, um, just purely aesthetic, uh, thing. Um, in this case, it was a 12 foot model. Uh, actually I'm reading from Cinefix. It was a 12 foot model with, uh, of styrofoam with a, tubular metal frame covered in fiberglass. But what was interesting is it then had a thin coating of plasticine over it, over the uh, fiberglass, because that allowed it to do really, really good um, uh, kind of fine detail kind of work on it, which I thought was uh, astounding. It also actually protected it from the intense heat of the studio lights. But uh, did you guys... I mean, I just think that alien... the, The ship and also the shots of it with the tiny little lights of the guys walking towards it was spectacular...
1: How they how they did that too with the uh, yeah? Where they actually they built the the big leg and then they had the smaller. They actually built three small spacesuits, and two I mean, of Ridley Scott's children and like uh, one of the cameraman's children <laughs> got in the spacesuits and made the. It actually changed the scale of the, the landing strut that they built. Did you were you guys just talking about that? Uh,
0: well, I wasn't talking about that per se. That that is a good point. And and when one of those kids then yeah, but when one of those kids then actually uh, nearly passed out, they actually modified the suits because the suits were actually horrendous for the actors to work in. And only when their kids actually nearly passed out did they actually fix the suits. But that's that's uh. a bit of a, a, a rat hole. But no, no, the the design of that ship, the implementation of it on camera. Um, I think obviously it's going to feature in Prometheus because we've seen it in the trailer but it's just a it's a wonderful design um and an unusual but still functional I could believe it's a different culture different technology but it didn't feel like it was just uh you know um something I'd seen before I just thought it was great
2: No I agree and I I think the that, that whole look was so it's a little difficult to um you know, to remember, I suppose, just how original um, that work was. And, and the space jockey in particular, that whole sequence where they finally get inside the uh, derelict vehicle and they see this, you know, this this strange uh, apparition. You know, they don't even, they, they can't wrap their heads around it. And you as the audience, you, you're you struggling to to see, is that a man? Is it? you know, how big is that thing, you know, uh, and then they look and there's that first little hint, you know, look, it's, it seems to have been, its chest was broken from the, from the inside, inside. <laughs> but you kind of forget that. It's so in, you know, it's kind of said with such a casual, like, oh, it's, you know, it's a man, he's sealed in this chair and his thing that you really don't, I didn't at least cognize it uh, completely, but there it is, you know, on a rewatch. Mm.
0: It's, uh, yeah, I think that That set, which, uh, as most people may know from the reading, was uh, one of the big contentions from the budget point of view because it was such a big set to build and it was used so little by comparison to some other things you might build and and reuse. And yet they wanted very much the filmmakers to make it so that it didn't look like a B-grade film and they really had some kind of epic, um, uh, you know, grandeur to it. Uh,
1: It works incredibly well. they said it was $500,000 to build that set and Giger himself painted every inch of it he airbrushed the whole thing i think is one of the things i was reading and and uh yeah but i do think it's true i think it it's one of those things that you know he fought for it uh ridley scott fought for it and they did that with a lot of the sets in this film that was obviously a key seminal set and looks to be something that will be featured uh, again in his sort of uh new film but um but uh you know a lot of the the way in which the sets were constructed for the ship itself as well as um uh well actually i guess for the ship which is where pretty much all the action in the film takes place aboard the uh, nostromo uh that was an entirely enclosed set and they were able to create uh all kinds of really interesting uh you know tracking shots and moves and um really get a really interesting uh kind of Uh, continuity, I think, as well from the actors, you know, in that everybody, and there were all these stories of people coming on the set, and you really felt like this was something that was real, you know, they were going and they were finding parts to decorate some of those sets and create some of those great, um, those kind of octagonal or hexagonal hallways, you know, they're such a staple of the way that we see so many science fiction films these days, you know, that there's a great the website, I think, where they did some exploration about all these different hallways and how that hallway becomes such a kind of important way that we experience like a, a sense of a science fiction film and of a spacecraft. But they would go to these, uh, you know, derelict um, uh, aircraft graveyards, and they were able to get pieces of, you know, these huge hulking airplane engines and uh, you know bits and pieces and parts of all these giant machined you know, engine hulls and stuff and take those pieces and build sections. And if, um, you know, they would build out and dress out this entire section of a hallway and, you know, the director would come by and look at it. And if he said, yep, this looks good, then they could go in and they could, you know, start casting molds and replicate that and repeat it again and again. And they did that with one long hallway scene. Um, this is a cool kind of effects uh, sort of trickery gag, too, where they did that in the sort of the lower levels of the ship they kind of had that sort of upstairs downstairs thing going on right with the crew up on top and then the harry dean stanton and the Mm. um, uh the other gentleman that was in the the lower levels of the ship and um they did a gag where they built this hallway and they wanted it to look like it would go on and on and they were talking about what they were going to do and ridley scott said well why don't we just put a mirror you know and angle (laughs) it slightly off at an angle at the end and they did it and you know it you can't even tell on film. It does look like it's this huge ship with this hallway that goes on for, you know, hundreds of yards and it's just a mirror, you know, and it's just a fantastic gag and it works great. Before people uh,
0: phone up, I did look up what you were talking about with the um, with the kids. I think that was inside the pilot seat chamber. When we were talking about it, it might have sounded like it was the um, – but the, the three kids in the smaller versions of the suit was actually in the pilot chair's chamber.
1: I thought they also did that too, though, with the, uh, the landing leg. Maybe, maybe they the did Because well. the landing leg was uh, a certain height. And, you know, when they had the actors in the real suits come out, uh, you know, they, it, it looked big. But they thought, well, Ridley Scott said, well, we could make this look even bigger you know, in the same context as to what they did with the space jockey. They had the kids in the suits, I think, come off of the elevator and they sort of overcranked it ever so slightly so they would move just a little bit slower. And uh it, it almost doubled the size of the thing. It made it look, you know, infinitely larger and it, it created a, a greater sense of scale on both on both accounts, uh, was my understanding. But I've um, got
0: to say, reading uh Giga's uh notes on this, you know, from because I've worked at Shepperton Studios, and 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 you know he was working late into the night. Um, uh, he and Mia, and you know there was a couple of lighting guys up in the you know sort of rafters trying to get stuff sorted out, sweating like nothing on earth because it was very uh, hot up there in the lights and stuff. And literally, like way into the night, trying to get it all painted and finished for the next day's shooting. It's a uh, it's a it's a really interesting kind of view. We we sort of see it as sort of I don't know glossy filmmaking. Um, not sweaty late night tinkering by yourself in a sort of, you know, a set to get these kind of things uh, that are now so iconic. I love that imagery.
1: Yeah, and uh, one other uh, effect-related thing that I was fascinated to find out about that I was totally unaware of was there's a couple of key shots um, where they show the miniature of whether it's the Narcissus, right, the little escape ship, or I think they even do this with the um, uh, the Nostromo at one point. Although I could be mistaken, but you see, I know there's a shot of the Narcissus, and you see, uh, I think it's the Narcissus, and you see one of the crew members walking. Through the Narcissus, uh, I don't know if it's Ripley or somebody else, but um, and they talked about how they how they did that. And again, it was it was not an. I thought it, of course it must be an optical, but it wasn't an optical. It was in camera. They built a foreshortened version of the Narcissus, and they literally just put a CRT monitor with the uh, the shot of the actor walking through or the stand-in for the actor, I think, walking through that environment, and they literally just shot it. with the with the thing behind the foreshortened version of the model and you see that and it looks you know like you're outside with the wind blowing or whatever and the kind of smoke blowing past and i thought that was another great um kind of real spitball and chewing gum kind of uh, okay i'll I'll give you my spitball and
0: chewing gum favorite when the alien is torched by the uh engines at the very very end of the film uh and you can probably work this out from watching it but um The shot's looking at the engines and the uh, engines are really firing at the camera and you get this kind of ghostly silhouette of the alien being torched by the harsh um, engines. It was all done basically by just putting a bunch of arc lights and then pouring water and so the cameras are beneath beneath and the, the water comes down. The, uh, the arc lights are obviously causing that, you know, what looks like the engine fire, which there's no fire at all. This is actually water. Uh, and you just read it as kind of plasma space stuff. It's incredibly cheap to do. Um, you don't have <laughs> to have the seat looking. Film. Yeah, it looks great. And you know what? There's about three cuts in there and the angle and the, the lenses are obviously being mucked up by the fluids. And so it's all being distorted, but then anything at super high heat would be distorted. So the fact that you don't have a clean shot of it just makes it believable. And, Looking at it again, knowing just how cheap and cheery that was and yet how wonderfully or sort of rich and, I'm going to say organic is an overused word, but, you know, it just does feel really visceral. Um, I I love that as an approach. Ty, you have to give us your best uh, string and chewing gum moment
2: well, you know, it's funny because I was listening uh, to this conversation and, and having, you know, worked uh, for, you know, 20, almost 25 years now in the film business and attended lots and lots of meetings, especially meetings about creatures and monsters and aliens and so forth. I think it would be, it, it, to me, the 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 Giger alien design is like, in my lifetime, the biggest land grab of of uh, <laughs> territory when it comes to uh, a specific kind of um, uh, uh, you know uh, entity or a, a specific kind of biology i haven't i've never attended a meeting uh, that had a, a creature or a monster or an alien where they didn't actually bring up in the first minute and a half well it's <laughs> either more like the alien or less like the alien and what's interesting about that is that um, getting back to what we were discussing earlier, how hidden it is, um, or in, except in with the mouth, I would say is very well articulated and and really dis- displayed beautifully. It, it, you see the importance of the contours and the the surfaces being lit and the highlights that that was that were being achieved with this kind of rim lighting of all this surface detailing and just the the way that that um uh Giger put this suit together with with glue and bones and and uh you know uh, materials from the basically from the makeup department and the model shop it it's it's a quite an extraordinary um um extraordinary um image that 's created with very simple things it 's practically a wet suit, you know uh, with um, just uh, sculpting on top of it, with the exception to the head and the head 's detail um, actually when uh, it 's my understanding that when Jim did uh, aliens uh, the the suits that they made for the dancers that Matt was mentioning and the and the mimes were actually very lightweight, almost like uh, airbrushed spandex suits with just the the back horns and a big you know, the big banana head um, because he was shooting them with different camera speeds and different weird angles. So there wasn't that much that needed to be there to maintain the integrity of the design from the first picture. But the first picture was so um, so original and so shocking and so glued into the psyche of all people uh, as all who have seen it, it everyone I've known in cinema in my, uh, my career, that it really is um, the 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 leader of um of uh, creatures to to point at whether you want it to be more like it or less like it it's it's always discussed and so i i think it's a it's a pretty marvelous um uh, example of of you know of creativity just being uh, put out on screen in a in a in a synergistic manner
0: i mean it's so true the the that idea of like sort of found items to get some of that face, I discovered. You know, there are sort of these almost tendril-type, um, thin kind of muscular sort of things at the side of the mouth, the jaw, that are sort of stretching. And literally, he shredded condoms and just stuck them in, <laughs> and they stretched really well. And I mean, it's just like bizarre when you read those things. That, but yeah, that's that's what he did, and I totally agree with you. Um, one thing I think that's kind of interesting. It's complete aside, but I loved. Uh, the way that the actors handled the dialogue in this film, that sometimes uh, there was dialogue going on that didn't seem to be really delivered. Uh, it was just, you know, that sort of sense of a uh, court documentary style. And I didn't realise until I researched for this that that was a lot of that stuff was improvised. Did you guys know that? that, that quite a lot of the dialogue and stuff I, was improvised. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, um, I mean, people like... I mentioned this is Sigourney's first film, though, of course, she came from a very strong entertainment background as her father was president of NBC in the 50s but I mean this is an actress you know uh that is her first film a lot of these actors are obviously really well known today but it just seemed like a great ensemble cast um and let's face it one of the things that just sells this is their acting they just act scared out of their friggin wits and a lot of the other actors not just Sigourney do a really good job of um of providing that sort of across-their-face horror for what must have been a fairly ridiculous rubber suit uh, from some points of view. Um, on the suit, did you know, uh, I, I don't know if this is true, but somebody um, posted this, that you never see the suit head-on uh, because really we're so worried about looking like a guy in a suit, that you only see side views of the uh, the alien. You never get a straight front-on view, that sort of classic... Um, humanoid shot uh, where you've got a head and shoulders and two arms either side that's a shot he just never does it's in a lot of the artwork um, and a lot of the original designs but never actually done that way on film which I thought was interesting
1: I think the only time you see it in that context is at the very end when it's finally ejected from the uh, the Narcissus I think you do get a shot where you see that it is a, a sort of a bipedal at the but, doorway you know, there's an, yeah
0: but even the doorway do you... it's off centre it's not straight on I don't think is it
1: or in the engine when he's when he's reeled he reels himself back into the engine compartment i think you get sort of you sort of get a chance to see it i don't know i but um but i think what's sort of ingenious about it and i think this isn't something that you're necessarily conscious of in the first alien film but you know it's it's fun to sort of uh, engage in sort of an ex- exploration of some of the alien lore and i'd be curious to find out and i i didn't really see much of this um other than just real brief anecdotal things that never really seem to um uh hone in on any sort of fact or fiction of the matter but i thought it was so interesting that uh it, later in the films you sort of get in alien three there was this uh the dog right uh is the first to become i think infected right mm-hmm. and so the so you wind up with this quadruped if the um if the alien in the uh, alien film is, you know, Cain's son, I think they say at one point, right, that, uh, you know, it takes on the form of its host, which I think yeah. is, uh, you know, something that becomes sort of interesting uh, to explore a great uh, explanation to some of that, um, uh, some of those elements of, you know, looking like a guy in a suit. I think if you think of it in those terms, uh, that becomes less of a concern.
0: Well, just to show that we're not completely sycophantic, I'm going to just discuss a couple of shots that I don't think worked very well, and mainly because I think they're kind of interesting why they don't work. Um, I didn't think the nuclear blast looked particularly good. Uh, It had that sort of slit-down feel, and it just felt like we need a nuclear blast to be something. I also didn't necessarily buy the shockwaves in space kind of rattling camera shake. I mean, I think it works cinematically, but... It seemed to be so far away from the actual nuclear explosion that I wasn't quite sure why they were getting buffeted by, uh, by that much air as there's no air in space. But the actual look of the blast, I don't know what you guys thought, just felt that felt
1: dated to me. And Yeah, I think I would agree. I would concur.
0: <laughs> um, one other shot that I was, I was being a smart-ass about when I, when I picked it apart, there's a great shot in the opening sequence of the film, not the opening, but the first sort of 10 minutes or something. They're heading towards the planet And uh, you get a kind of a satin ring shot. It's a big kind of classic matte Mm -hmm. painting shot. The sun is way off. It's rim lighting the planet. It's just sort of a gorgeous matte painting. And you see the ship traveling towards the planet as a kind of near dot. And it suddenly struck me that it was completely lit up. And if it's backlit, where the hell was it getting any light from? Because (laughs) uh, it's meant to be a mile and a half across. And if it's going into the sun, as I was pretty sure there wasn't another sun anywhere nearby it should be completely silhouetted and i'm sure at some point somebody had it black and went well i just can't see the body thing now so but if you look at it it's almost lit up like uh like a bad comp uh, just almost silver ambient whacked up um mm. and uh it's just funny because uh i had never noticed it it was only because i was trying to find points for this show that i think i even <laughs> uh came in on it Um, And then uh, the other thing is they must have been the use of rear projection or um, whatever and some of the window shots. There's a matte painting type shot and we can see clearly a kind of a bridge and it's very blue inside and it has that feeling that it was actually projected film onto some kind of surface through a little window, even though the window is only, you know, a tenth or a twentieth of a screen height. Um, you can see people moving in it. And there's a couple of shots like that. And the outside is all very dark and the same color palette. And we suddenly have this weirdly color-timed blue interior, quite well lit up, uh, which doesn't match, of course, the lighting levels that that the ship actually had, nor the blue tones. And I think that's just literally technology just couldn't get there. Like, how do you have people moving in these big shots? If you're going to do... It might have been a miniature that they had it physically projecting in, which is what they did, of course, in... um, in, uh, um, the abyss when they had the uh, the ships going down into the water. Uh, or it may have been that it was just a comp in, uh, in optical. But either way, uh, some of those shots in the windows really didn't sit as well. Were there any other shots that you thought technology was th- giving away? I think...
2: Well, I think the, the shot you're referring to is one on the planet surface with yep. the Nostromo, and I don't know this, but I would guess they did it with the CRT, you know, some kind of video projection. That's probably why it was so blue. Right. And from my understanding, the, the, the bulk of the the, the decision making, um, in large part, was driven by budget, and that's another yeah. interesting angle that we could discuss. Is because you know budgets um, are always the nemesis to production or to to the creative execution of production and i'd say knowing um you know having reviewed the film again recently and listened to some of the same commentary we all have is that it, what you see is this can do attitude to um, to kind of uh, push ahead. Uh, and embrace the shortcomings as best uh, as best the, that the group could or the director could you know, and in certain cases like you 're pointing to they they're um, you know they 're problematic i, I suspect uh, and they you know certainly could have been tweaked uh, in t- given today 's technology they could there wouldn 't even be issues but what 's interesting is how many the, how many times it actually improves the viewing experience by and large. The landing, as we discussed earlier, I mean, there's something about the mass of that, and the, and the, and the fact that they were using big physical models, and I think that a Nostromo model was. I, I just read an article recently that was found in a parking lot and like refurbished, and I think it's like 14 feet long or something. So you know, they had on a big uh, forklift and 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 dropping it down on real materials. You know, something you wouldn't do today, but it had a real. Um, positive effects. So, it's an interesting, you know, it's easy, you can go through and say, well, these things worked extraordinarily well because they were done on the cheap and these things worked not so well because they were done on the cheap. But you never really get to decide, you know. It's the interesting uh, the truth about uh, the, the film business, you know, the, 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 the movie business has a business and that's money.
0: Yeah, I mean, there were underneath shots of the spaceship in the early sequences, I mean, right up the front of the film where there just wasn't enough depth of field. There is clearly a change in depth of field between the front part of the underneath ship But you're kind of tracking along it at 45 degrees underneath. And if you look, it's getting soft in the distance. And I'm sure someone would have said, we need you know, a ton more light in here to be able to get the, the f-stop to a point that we're not getting this. And somebody else would have just pointed out, well, A, it's dark and no one's going to notice and B, we just can't afford it because that would have been really <laughs> hard to do. Um, but I... I guess, I don't know, but I just, I want to flag that there, we shouldn't claim that, that you could easily make uh, that film again, and that everything worked perfectly well, and digital doesn't provide anything, and it was all great back in the day. No way. there are a lot of places that you can nitpick if you wanted to.
2: Well, I agree. I think the what's funny is that there's a i think it gets back to a point we were discussing earlier there's a there's a kind of totality about the film it's very self um affirm self-affirming you know i mean it's a it's a complete work that that has you know has its um integrity uh, wrapped up in its own presentation so it doesn't it's not disjointed it's a little jarring, maybe a moment or two here and there, but by and large, it's a very cohesive picture, and I think that goes a long way in making it the the watching experience about the emotions and the and the rise and fall of the action,
0: rather than being about the 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 pieces that make it up. I think, along with Blade Runner, this film defined for a generation of film clip, music video makers. Just how cool it was to shoot <laughs> anamorphically with lots of smoke in the shot. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this yeah. is a film that should get an Academy Award for atmosphere. I mean, uh, <laughs> there's just – it's marvellous in the interiors how much they feel cold and smoky and there are particles in the air and there's just everything. Yeah.
2: Is, And then there's that awesome though, there's also, it's, I remember it's, it's such a standout little piece is that when he, um, when the, when you finally go into the heart of the ship, mother, you know, the little control Mm. computer, it has a completely different vibe. You know, it's like going into the clean room, you know, it's like, in fact, I even remember watching it thinking, those guys are going to get that dirty,
0: you know, know, because there's a certain, there's a certain purity about it. Well, you probably uh, came from that idea of computers and clean rooms, um, You got that, I think, also in the white uh, set that was the sleeping quarters, which also had Mm. that kind of sterile feel. Yep. I mean, back in the day, computers used to live in clean rooms. It used to be a big deal. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. I mean, I thought it was, a, by today's standards, just silly, right? Like you've got all these little lights with tiny little labels under every little light. Like this is the user interface you come up with? I mean, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, it is, it, is pretty, um, it is pretty bizarre, but it's bizarre in the way that the larger picture is in a weird way. And you kind of go with it. At least I remember feeling like, man, I would love to listen to my stereo in there. You know, no, it, it totally, yeah, ones. it
0: looked, It looked. you know, uh, Space Station 1999, 2001 cool. Don't get me wrong. It still looks cool. It's just completely ridiculous, right? I oh, mean, yeah. you've got yeah. switches yeah. behind your head that, you know, you can't even read what's on them even if you knew that they were flashing. I mean, and why and are they I all flashing? That, and, I think
1: the the medical bay, you know, where they first kind of birth out of that sort of, you know, the flower that kind of opens up, I think that still holds up really well. But I do think that computer room, the mother computer room, that's the one thing. For me, that really feels uh, really dated.
0: I mean, here's the thing, right? It, it is almost impossible in a film of any period to predict what computers are going to look like in the future. I mean, there's, no one's pretty much done it that well. Maybe you guys can think of an example, but almost every time someone did something with computers, uh, it just looked back in the day like it was sci-fi and now looks so stupid as to be ridiculous. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's just... It's just a really hard one to pull off.
2: I I mean, I still think 2001 was pretty close. When you come to just (laughs) thinking about multiple displays and simple, you know, direct, clean surfaces. I mean, I I think rear projection that's in 2001 looks dated because it's you know it doesn't look like real graphics. But I think that um, that stuff's held up pretty well. But I know your point, and I think uh, I think it does telegraph. I guess in this picture, there's some some things that um, seem dated, but,
0: you know, they're dated in a way that they were trying to be cool when the picture was being made. Um, obviously, you guys have not probably had a chance to see Avengers yet, but I'm not telling tales out of school because it has actually opened here. There is a <laughs> terrific funny line. Uh, there's a whole lot of computer screens, you know, like classic sci-fi computer screens that you have um, in any of these kind of films where there's just tons of screens and as with most of these things it's just kind of stupid right i mean it's just stupid in a way because it's very hard to look at them and they're all odd angles and stuff and normally that's just just given right we just as a audience accept that there are super high-tech screens everywhere but no one really expects that anyone in any sensible sense could sit down and use them without becoming quite positively (laughs) uh eye straight except for in the film with with avengers which is not giving anything away for the plot don't worry this is not a spoiler if you haven't seen it. it is at one point uh stark's character iron man literally looks at these screens which um the head of uh um the uh what's his name from um yeah he's got the eye patch and he's been in the other films um the head of Shield. Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, but no, but I forgot what the character's name is. But anyways, the head of Shield has an eye patch. So he literally looks at these screens and then puts one hand over his eye and goes, How does he even look at these things with one eye? And someone goes, He turns a lot. And I just thought it was <laughs> it's like a really great little moment where That's Because funny. you know, like oftentimes it is just uh, stupid ass. And I, I thought it was great that back in nineteen 19- uh, 79 when they were making this, that clearly they were big Joy Division fans, because I don't know if you guys are Joy Division fans of the music as I am, but there was the album cover of Joy Division's Unknown Pleasure that seemed to be on every monitor that Ripley was looking at, which I thought was really important. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's I think you're right, uh, 2001, best, you know, computer sort of uh, extrapolation we've ever seen. But then again, it it's, it's, was... Brilliant because it all it had was the eye you know it just had no kind of other ui and stuff that was going to date um and if you'd put a ui in there that was even by today's standards acceptable everyone would have just gone well it doesn't look like a computer i don't know what's going on yeah. so you know okay well we're kind of nearly getting to the end of the show so uh, is there anything on the film that we haven't touched on that uh ty you wanted to um, mention
2: no I, I i think that this has been an interesting dialogue um i think I think that what I love is that new generations of people are uh, seeing the picture and and really love it um, um, I have a acquaintance who's just now turning twenty five and he both of these pictures he 's been a huge fan of since he was a kid and and um, I think that it, it is one of those pictures that um the first time you see it, you know you 're captivated by it and and that speaks to me of of art and cinema and the best that um, can come out of this um, whole way of uh, telling stories and and making uh, uh, images so i 'm glad to have been able to uh, share my love of the picture for sure and and you know it, it is a, a picture that still um, has a lot to say i think and and is a great uh, place to start for. Uh, conversation about cinema, or just about um, the genres, uh, horror and science fiction, and uh, all these uh, various uh, facets of um, uh, of what Hollywood is and has been and will be.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. It is a masterpiece. That gets overworked as a term, but it is just a brilliant film, and uh, and it's great that prometheus will cause a lot of people to go back and watch it if you haven't seen aliens one and two in a while you absolutely should watch them before you see prometheus i'm not giving anything away because that's that's absolutely the the first thing that anyone would say but it is true uh it's a really good idea matt what anything about the film that you wanted to mention
1: uh i mean i would just echo i think what you said i i I think it's amazing to look at alien and look at it Today to watch a really great you know Blu-ray version of it or HD copy of it somewhere, and to really look at this film and to know that this is Ridley Scott's second feature film, um, that's pretty remarkable. And I think to this day, somewhat, uh, God, almost what seventy nine, eighty nine, ninety nine. It's horrible. Mean, we're talking like, yeah. I mean, how many how many years has it been now? Like, you know, for a film that's been around uh, for some—is that thirty years? Thirty, yeah, uh, yeah, thirty-two. Or yeah, something. I mean, that's crazy. Uh, it holds up so well, and I mean, I yes, I do. I, I think I get a bad rap sometimes. People say I'm. Is, uh, overly opinionated sometimes and too cynical about some of these kinds of movies and stuff but I really think this is a movie I can't say enough good things about it's, uh, I, I love this film I think it's just so so brilliant on so many levels and I have not been um, for a host of reasons but I have not been as excited and I, I hope I'm not disappointed but for a film um, as I am for the, uh, the forthcoming uh, Prometheus film uh, in June I haven't been this excited for a movie and I, I don't know in how long in you know maybe twenty years it it just looks uh, it, it looks like uh, it just looks so ta- like a tasty treat that I can't wait to uh, sink my teeth into.
0: I I doubt I doubt yeah we, we can't discuss Prometheus yet because it hasn't come out yeah. and, and we obviously will but uh, we will have a show on Prometheus we will also have a show on Avengers and other stuff coming up uh, but look yeah this film even if you've seen it before. And it's probably been a while. You should go back and watch it again because it is just that good. Um, Ridley, of course, had done tons of uh, commercial TV
1: well, commercials, to, yeah, yeah. You know, like some, yeah. And so I think that shows, but it shows in a good way. It shows a many. And I, I think the one other thing too that about this film, and I think this is something about Ridley Scott in particular as an artist, as a filmmaker, as a commercial director. You know, he's a guy I think who he really is. A great director, and I think one of the things that he brings to the table is an aesthetic sensibility a, a certain kind of um, a certain kind of taste it 's an ephemeral thing, but I think that he has uh, an exquisite taste for um, for narrative for performance, and certainly for composition and lighting and I think that that 's something that 's evidenced in uh, you know a film like Alien a very uh, really early cinematic work for him and one that still holds up to this day and i think it's you know an important film for anybody interested in in uh, visual effects or interested in cinema in cinema history i think it's one that um you know i would venture to guess a hundred years from now people will still be looking back at this film and watching it and recognizing it as uh really one of the more important films of the 20th century for sure
0: yeah. I often end these podcasts with a quote, but an actual direct quote from this film is is one of Ash's, which is primordial, deep cold, way below the
1: line. <laughs> Just like could like, put that on a t shirt. Okay. I, I gotta I gotta send out a, a couple of quotes uh from Aliens that people um, there's always the classics, but the two obscure ones that I've heard a couple of people say in recent times that blew my mind. I heard somebody recently say, We're in the pipe, five by five, which I thought was genius. And then <laughs> Uh, I actually was on an airplane No joke (laughs) Coming in for a landing And the pilot said uh, We're coming in for a 709-er And I thought that was so good And he asked everyone to put their seatbelts on And we'd be coming in for a 709-er I don't know if that's a real term But I thought the pilot was a fan of aliens
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, we haven't spoken a lot about aliens, um, mainly because uh <laughs> the Ridley thing. But yeah, we're obviously a huge fan of that film as well. Um, but uh, maybe we'll come back and revisit it uh, or or include it more in the discussion now when we discuss Prometheus, who knows. Um, Ty, where can people uh, track you down? Where, what are you up to?
2: Um, well, it can be reached on my uh, website, which is alieninsect.com. And uh, I'm on Facebook. You just have to search for Ty Rubin, T-Y-R-U-B-E-N. And Matt?
1: Uh, you can find me at Mattwallen.com And uh, I'll have a, some kind of cool stuff, I hope, towards the end of the summer that I'll be able to start talking about. I, I have a Got a couple provisional patents, and i 'm working on this pretty cool software application with the university that i wow. that I teach at and uh, It could be pretty cool it could be something that some uh, of our colleagues might find useful um, so i 'll keep my fingers crossed, but i 'll let you guys know more about it when it's uh all finished.
0: Excellent, and of course uh, you'll find me over at uh, FX Guide. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, as I said, we've got some really big summer blockbusters coming up, so we look forward to them. And don't forget, uh, check out uh, our coverage from FMX coming up, uh, courtesy of our uh, sponsor, which is uh, Autodesk, uh, and that's coming up in a little bit. Thanks so much for being with us. Talk to you guys later. See you.
2: If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx
1: at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.